Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Darsh Shah. And I'm Dr. Ultima Shraja. And welcome to Medicine Redefined. A podcast where we will explore the often overlooked but necessary components of health, what we consider to be the fundamentals. We will investigate topics and practices that can give you and your patients the best chance to optimize a healthy lifestyle. It's time to move the needle forward and put the health back in healthcare. Hello everyone. Today our guest is Dr. Alex King, and he is a repeat customer for us. He was back with us about three years ago on episode six, talking about all things osteopathic manipulative medicine. Now, Dr. Alex King is a associate program director for the Neuromusculoskeletal Medicine Program at Rowan Virtua, where he also trains a lot of medical students and specializes in neuromusculoskeletal medicine. He received his Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine degree from the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, where he also completed his residency in neuromusculoskeletal medicine. Dr. King also holds medical licensure for acupuncture, where he received his education from the Helms Medical Institute. So in this episode, we're going to break down all things acupuncture, basically the philosophy of it, the pathophysiology of it, what providers should know when they educate patients before they go into their first session. So we really do a deep dive in terms of acupuncture, something we've all heard about, but probably don't understand exactly how it works or what's in store for when a patient goes through sessions. And at the end of the conversation, Dr. King gives us some of his insights, some of the new things he's doing throughout his day-to-day in regards to his own lifestyle optimization. This is a fun one. Hope you enjoy. Dr. Alex King, welcome back to the show, man. It's been, what, three years? Um, Yeah, maybe (laughs) just about. Honestly, I think it was December 2020 is when we connected and um, you know, I tell people all the time, I think I, I am where I am in my career at this point in this job uh, because of you, right? And so all started on social media through Darsh Connected Podcast. And um, before we know it, I was calling you a year later. I was like, hey, man, I get down there. And here we are. So what's up, man? Uh, catch catch the audience up. I think you were episode six, uh, yeah. if I recall correctly. We talked a lot about OMM. We'll do a little bit of that. We'll talk some osteopathic philosophy, but we'll dive a little bit deeper into your other passion, things that you're really, really good at. So uh, catch the the folks up on to what's been new. What episode are we at now? Oh, man, we're the 130. 30 I mean, th- this I is mean, going to be probably closer to 140, 130 yeah. something. Okay, awesome. So yeah, so yeah, we're in episode six. Now we're at, in the hundreds, which is really cool. So congrats to you guys for like sticking this out and getting down here. That's awesome. Thanks, man. I, uh, yeah. I think I think lately, you know, being at Rowan now for for about three years, give or take, um, I've just had like uh, like what you say a lot, Altamash is like you learn the most as an attending, like bar none compared to residency, compared to your med school, like attend being an attending, a new attending, you're learning stuff like every day, whether you like it or not. Um, so I think just having gone through those initial few years, now I'm finally like at a level of comfort, you know, where I've started my own practice on the side, you know, um, I'm kind of expanding a little bit more in terms of my, you know, what I like to do for treatments. And and I think it's always a changing process with what I do, because nothing is really algorithmic. I'm just kind of like going with the flow, seeing what I'm interested in, um, and just kind of, you know, seeing patients and making adjustments as I go along. Let me ask you, Alex, is there a way to prepare for attending hood? And ultimately, you can answer this too, because I mean, 
everyone asks, right? Like, how do you prep for med school? And I look back and I'm like, I don't think you really can. It's something you just go through. And then how do you prep for residency? Just live your best fourth year and go in and you kind of just learn on the job. So going back to residency, is there anything that you would have done differently to help you prepare better for attending yeah. it? Is there, is there a way to prepare? I think, I think, I don't, I don't think I would go and do anything differently, but I think I would mentally be ready for the fact that I'm not going to be able to help everyone and that patients will have bad outcomes. I think there is no perfect physician out there who's never had a bad outcome, never, you know, done wrong, never, you know, been unable to fix people, you know? So it's like, I would say when I went through that, I, you know, I'd feel guilty or I'd beat myself up and be like, God, like, why couldn't I make that difference? But I think in the patient's eyes, you know, as long as you're making that genuine effort and you're saying, hey, like, I'm going to help you through this. We're going to find our answers here. They appreciate that. So so you might be saying one narrative to yourself about that, but like the patient still will regard you as someone who's trying to help them. So I think recognizing that and I think in the last year or two, coming to terms with that has allowed it to be a much easier transition. So I would say, you know, coming out of residency and being that person who always has the attending to fall back on. Well, guess what? Now you're the guy. So um, get ready for those difficult conversations, those difficult situations and everything. Um, and now I can definitely say I'm way more comfortable with not only like confrontation, but also things that I feel are shortcomings, which actually really might just be situational, you know? Um, so I think that is something to keep in mind as, you know, people transition from residency to a attending hood, uh, you know, with, with great power comes great responsibility, right? So it's like you have all these tools you've developed. Now you have the responsibility to use them to the best of your ability uh, while also, you know, taking hands with that patient and working with them through difficult times as well. So I think that's something that's something I didn't really understand until I went through. I wholeheartedly echoed that sentiment. You know, initially, my first thought was like, oh, you know, we, we practice a lot about in terms of our trainees, we're talking a lot about billing and coding. That's a, a sexy thing, right? I'm involved in residency education now as well. And that's something we want to emphasize to prepare you when you get out and so you can learn about the business of medicine. But I think what you just highlighted right there is probably far more valuable. Again, no way to prepare for it. Just recognize that this is coming and it's going to be okay. Like this is, you're going to go through this, like the whole imposter syndrome thing. Um, it's going to be a part of the process. I I, I underestimated the, the strong feelings of accountability you have, right? I think when you're a trainee yeah. and you have that attending, and it also probably depends on the setup in terms of continuity clinic and whatnot, but like now it's, these are your patients and like the buck stops with you. Mm -hmm. And so certainly the bad outcomes make you feel terrible. And depending on your specialty, and if you're like a heavy proceduralist, Sometimes complications are a part of the process too, right? And those also make you feel horrible. And it's like really important, like how do you deal with that, right? How are yeah. you there for your patients in moments of need, whether like they're having a bad outcome or they had a complication expected or unexpected? Um, and then, you know, how are you going to deal with that after the fact? I think the first yeah. couple of months, like if I did have that bad outcome and nothing worked, I would come home and I'd just be thinking about that one case, mm -hmm. right? Like why, like, what am I missing? What did I do? Should I have ordered this instead? Should I not done the procedure for, and that could, that could be very difficult. Luckily for us, 
both of us were relatively early out of our career. So you can bounce that off somebody and mm-hmm. say, hey, like, you know, um, like, what am I missing? Like, we, we talk about, we curbside each other all the time, right? Yeah. So um, that's that's good. I think that, yeah, I can't imagine somebody going to solo private practice right out, what that would be like to not be able to bounce cases off someone. I, I call it keeping the hope alive for that patient. So it's like, it's like, I know I couldn't help you or like we, we couldn't get quite there, but there's this amazing doc right, <laughs> right next to me who can possibly help where I can't. So I think just, and then the patient's like, oh, okay. Like something that they can hope for to get better. Cause I think the one thing you don't want to do is be like, yeah, I can't help you. There's probably no one who can and sorry, you know, it's like, I think that's just a lose situation for everybody. So, so definitely being part of a multidisciplinary practice can be very helpful in terms of just this, those stressors. Um, and, and just keeping that network of referrals, whether it's not only just doctors, but like other physical therapists, you know, we have a strong base of PTs we really trust and we, we bounce ideas off of. Um, and so I think other practitioners, even if they're not like fully medical, but can still offer assistance and help to that patient, uh, I think is like, you know, what can be a, be a nice, uh, resource for sure. Yeah. If nothing else, it kind of jives well with that saying that, you know, you're just keeping the patient entertained until the body heals itself. Right. Was it, oh, was yeah. that, who, who said oh. that? Was that Voltaire or somebody? Darcy you wouldn't know this. ET still. I don't know. <laughs> that was a good, that's a good one though. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, let's, um, I mean, I was going to ask you kind of one of the key lessons you learned in attending code going from private practice to academic medicine. Maybe let's, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Right. So last time we chatted, you were in private practice and it was a completely different model. We talked about how you spent an hour talking to patients and, um, you know, sometimes people did consultations before they come and you just had no, um, no boundaries for lack of a better word, no restrictions that you could freely practice. Mm -hmm. Now you're clearly in a different model you have a ton of administrative and academic responsibilities. Compare and contrast that a little bit for the people of what that's like for you and and uh, and how you feel about that. I think um, I think for me, there was way more accountability in the academic sphere because you are being watched by your students, by your residents, they're going to model their behavior based off of you and their future practice, you know, um, based off of what how you do it, so to speak, because because of that influence. So I think there's a big responsibility there, not just for your patient, but for whoever you're training. But I think for me, that makes me better as a clinician, which is why I really like that. I felt in private practice, it wasn't like I was just kind of like lackadaisical and like, ah, whatever it's but the but it's it's the stakes aren't quite as high, I feel like, especially when you're seeing patients who, you know, they're using their insurance, they might be Medicare, Medicaid, you might be their last hope in terms of, you know, what what they're trying to get help for. And I think in private practice, a lot of patients you're seeing, especially in the one I was in, were were just very, you know, well off people who could afford the luxury of seeing a cash based physician, which is there's nothing wrong with that. But you're just seeing different types of cases. They're different stakes. And so I think um, transitioning into the academic sphere, I just really liked that emphasis on um, the teaching components, but also really helping people who, who I don't think desperate is the right word, but who are just really, um, really looking for someone to, to help them in a way that was vital to their livelihood more so. 
where it's like they need help to get, you know, to get through that pain so they can actually get groceries or so that they can go to work or that they can take care of their kids. Um, I like those stakes because like I felt like very fulfilled doing that and helping people through that kind of stuff. So I think that's kind of um, what I felt transitioning into, you know, from private into academia. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think about is, you know, outcome-based medicine in the academic setting versus private or even like concierge cash-based. And so I'm wondering, did you notice a difference in at least your patient outcomes just based off what you were able to do? You know, um, obviously there's going to be variability given, you know, you, um, for one is attending experience, you know, starting earlier on versus then going to academics, being more mature, understanding how the system works, but just also the inefficiencies that often come along with academic setting. Did you find that there was this barrier where you couldn't really practice as much as you felt like you could, whereas you were able to do that in a cash-based or private practice setting? It's interesting because at first I did feel limited, especially with time. I was like, I just don't have time to like do a full treatment or to talk as much as I wanted or to try this kind of treatment. But I would say that almost made me better because then I use the time more efficient, efficiently because I know my limitations. And therefore, I, I change the way that I approach things to be just, you know, uh, a lot, a lot smoother in terms of the process and like the logistics. So now I've, I've kind of got things into like where I run things kind of like just like a kitchen, you know, like it's a well-oiled machine where I've got timers on, there's bells ringing, there's students checking on. I'm, I kind of joke, but I'm like, oh, this patient's cooking in room six. Let's get, you know, five on, uh, you know, with the heat lamp on. All right, let's bring them into four. So I think because of those limitations, it actually, um, it actually really helped me improve a lot of these processes that I didn't really need to improve for quite a while because I was kind of had the luxury of like that resource of time. Um, but I think in, in a way joining academic medicine, having the students and residents there picks up a lot of the slack and, and, and allows you to make a lot of those impactful adjustments because they're also really smart. Like they'll catch you on stuff all the time. They'll give really good insights. And I think it makes, uh, treating patients um, have this really cool dimension of that, like, you know, that that student or that resident who's like, hey, Dr. King, like, did you ever think of doing like doing it this way? And I just because I'm used to doing it my way, I never like saw it from like a beginner's eyes, so to speak. But in a lot of ways, that reveals a lot that you're kind of missing. Um, so I think there was a give and take there with like, you know, Yes, you lose some resources and you and you kind of get more constraints in academic, but you have a, a lot of other things that can help with improving, you know, your approach, so to speak. So, yeah, I've seen the, the well-oiled machine up close and personal. I <laughs> admire the fact that you're always done with your notes prior to leaving clinic. And, <laughs> and, uh, and that's never the case for me, even though I'm leaving at like six o'clock. But yeah, I... I think this is a good time for us to transition and talk a little bit about the specific treatment modality, something that you've become kind of like the uh, the regional expert in, if I can say so. Yeah. Um, and that's acupuncture, right? So I'd love for you to give people and maybe just like a brief overview of, we could maybe start with the history of acupuncture. I think that would be a good place to start just to understand like why we even do this. Mm -hmm. And then um, most people have probably heard of it, but you know, 
feel free to to make it as basic as possible and then we can ask some follow-ups to to make it more complex and, and dive deep, deeper into the pathophys of it man i love this stuff um so back in the caveman ages where we used to live outside and <laughs> sleep by the fire we sometimes would use various tools to attempt to create a healing thing within the body right so like a healing based change and a lot of those changes were both like or also like herbs um maybe like things like tobacco and cannabis and what have you which we would hey maybe someone threw it on the fire and was like hey i inhaled the smoke and i feel like different or something but like with with acupuncture and and even tattooing what was interesting is like piercing the skin somehow had this like somewhat of a profound effect on the body, um, whether it was to elicit pain for some kind of possibly therapeutic reason with like tattooing. And maybe they thought the iconography conveyed some kind of like magical power to like help heal. So that's why you see like a lot of these, you know, mummies and things found in caves had like actual markings on their body and things like that. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, they maybe they did think those were medicinal. Um, but also the use of things like fishbone or bamboo or like really thin, uh, thin instruments to like insert into parts of the body. Those are considered like the first acupuncture based tools. Um, you know, of course, not very sterile, not very, <laughs> we would not use that nowadays for sure. But that was kind of like the, the pioneers of what was done. And then, of course, in China is where you saw this take off and like, uh, you know, Roughly 600 BC is when it became very refined and it was like the use of these really thin metallic uh, instruments to then insert into the body and was classical acupuncture around 600 BC. And then as you're starting to get more at the turn or, you know, at zero BC essentially is when uh, people are starting to write about these things and like document different points they found were useful or and this is where the lore starts to come in. So it's really cool about acupuncture is there's roughly 365 distinct points on the body and each one has its own story that has been taken shape over thousands of years, just clinically orally passed down. Um, and yeah, throughout the years, there have been written texts about these things and it's still kind of shaping up to this day with our modern research methods. Um, but, you know, throughout history is really in the East and China where this really started up and then it kind of spread naturally through Europe and like you know, the 17, 1800s, especially in France. I think France was the first European country where the physicians were like, huh, there's something really to this. And they started to really do more studies on it and to translate the teachings from Chinese into French in uh, roughly, I think, in the 19, early 1900s to 1950s. Um, and that's where my uh, uh, fellowship director, Joe Helms, who uh, you know, created the popular HMI or Helms Medical Institute Fellowship for Physician Acupuncturists. He studied in France. Um, so technically, I learned French acupuncture. And there's all these different subsects, which we can talk about, you know, versus TCM versus French, Japanese, Korean, there's all these different emphases. Uh, but I would say, um, historically, you know, acupuncture has been a very eastern based thing but it's really cool now to see the west starting to look at this and be like there is definitely something to this and i think you know in 2020 when medicare started covering it that was kind of the official stamp of the government saying okay yeah acupuncture can help um especially with low back pain right which is what they cover it for uh for medicare so um that's kind of like a brief history of acupuncture and there's a lot more nuance 
um, for sure, kind of in there. But um, but yeah, so that's kind of like how we came to be where we're at now. Very cool. I would love to um, understand the derivatives of each of those subtypes, right? Because I think, you know, one of our physicians um, understands Chinese medicine, has done grand rounds on Chinese medicine. And so I've always thought acupuncture kind of originated from just China and that's it. And there wasn't even this history beyond that. And that a lot of our Western society, quote unquote, I don't want to say looks down upon it, but also is like, is this evidence based? You know, what's what what is this thing where we're sticking needles? But knowing that there is a French philosophy and that has kind of come over to taking shape here in the U.S., where if you're going to get a certification or, you know, um, be able to do acupuncture, that is a way that you can learn it. I would love to get an understanding of the different subtypes and kind of how they derived and how each of them are different. And do they do they are they specific for different disease processes or whatnot? I think it's more of like it's like styles of painting, right? You have your your impressionists, your abstract abstract expressionists, your realists, and so it's like it's as an art form, it has all of these different frames of reference and these different ways of actually doing the process of it. So I think you know, with TCM being like you know the the kind of main initial form of that acupuncture, that is what everything is kind of branched off of. But then when you look at specific subsects of various countries and where the geography kind of comes into play, like with French, French was kind of distilled from TCM by French doctors, and they tried to somewhat protocolize things and and further research and elucidate, okay, like, what are the best types of, you know, protocols we can use for various disease processes? So that's where you started to get the translation from, you know, like a splenic deficiency into like a more Western understanding of what that might mean. Um, So I think that's kind of what French energetics is, is like, you know, this Western lens on this Eastern practice that um, we give names to specific types of protocols, for example, like PENS or percutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. Um, PENS is a style of like French acupuncture that involves electrical boxes and the use of stim. Um, or like, uh, for example, like an NN plus one energetic treatment, which has a reference to like, you know, N as a number and then as another number plus one, where you add that one extra needle to then drive energy through a circuit. So like all of these different kinds of protocols we've given these names to. Um, but for Korean acupuncture, for example, so my grandfather practiced acupuncture, uh, learning the TCM style, but um, I know like Korean hand acupuncture is a thing, for example, and you can do a whole course on Korean hand acupuncture as a microsystem. So some cultures have focused on these microsystems as a form of like kind of putting their stamp on the practice. Uh, I know Japanese uh, acupuncturing style. I've been told that I have a very Japanese way of putting the needles in, which I thought was interesting, and in that um, I don't do extremely deep needling, which can sometimes be very painful. And I think I've found the reason I've gravitated towards that is because of a lot of my patients are, uh, you know, naive to acupuncture and haven't had it before. So I've I've adopted a style of very gentle needling to then increase the buy-in and to allow patients to feel comfortable with my treatments. Um, So not only is there different whole protocols based on, you know, a Western lens of acupuncture through French energetics, but it can also be more a somatotopic geographical, uh, 
nuanced thing with like Korean hand acupuncture. And even with the style that you're needling could be more Japanese style. So it's it's kind of like a very fluid categorization based on different cultures and history. And so that's what I find so fascinating is like nothing is fully set in stone, but you just kind of know once you're in it, so to speak. I love that, man. So I kind of want to understand the the pathomechanics and pathophys a little bit better. But before I do that, I do think it's important to kind of uh, distinguish the difference between things like acupressure, because people will, will hear acupressure therapy and they're like, oh, maybe it's the same thing. And I often get the question uh, because a lot of our physical therapy colleagues will do dry needling and they'll ask me, well, how is it different? Mm-hmm. And I don't have a good answer for that. So my hope is that you can you can give that uh, to me. So maybe let's start with what the differences are between that. And then we could talk about uh, the stuff, pathophys. Yeah, I um, I get this dry needling question a lot. I, you know, I think uh, the main distinction is it's the same tool, but for a different purpose and for a different uh, amount of time. For example, like dry needling can is relatively qu- quick per per spot that you're doing it. So for example, when you use an acupuncture to do dry needling, you're picking the spot you're gonna dry needle, then you insert the needle and you peck around, not for a super long time, cause then they'll get really, really sore cause you're quite literally fenestrating the muscle and you're pecking away at that that myofascial band. Um, but uh, it's it's more of like you kind of pick your locations and you're you're at one location, then you move to the next, then the next, then the next. And, you know, you might your session might be over within five to ten minutes. Um, So I think because of the rigors of dry needling, you're limited in terms of how many spots you can do it and your amount of time, because it can be like a pretty uh, sore soreness inducing procedure. So um, with acupuncture, that's a more of a long form type of treatment where you're using the same tool, you know, the same dissecting needle. and, and, you know, that's the main difference between Accu and, and other needles, quote unquote. It's like it's not a hypodermic needle. There's no hollow point to it. It's not a cutting needle. They quite literally go between structures. So that's why a lot of times the Accu needles you won't feel. Um, and, and with long form acupuncture, that's where you really set it and then allow the needles to to change your physiology which does take some some amounts of time based on what physiology you're tapping into. And I think um, I think this is, you know, based on off a lot of fMRI data that brain activation peaks roughly 20 to 22 minutes in terms of the central nervous central nervous system physiologic changes with acupuncture. But I think when you're doing dry needling, you're kind of going for that local effect and that peripheral effect a little bit more like the physical breaking up. Uh, and when I think of acupuncture, I'm thinking of like an energetic shift with your autonomics and your, you know, endorphin levels. Um, so that's why it necessitates a longer time frame. I love that analogy. I mean, I think kind of the tenotomy and the musculoskeletal based stuff that we do in sports medicine, we've had conversations about PRP and fenestrations. Yeah. The, the local effects, sometimes even maybe creating more of an inflammatory effect to allow that healing cascade to resume. Right. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the systemic versus, um, local thing is really helpful. So I'm going to be using that a lot. And then acupressure, I, I think I'll just quickly say it in terms of acupressure, that's probably more pinpoint therapy, usually with your finger trips, but it could be with other blunt tools to apply pressure to specific acupoints. Now, my question for you is if you know, you mentioned 365 acupoints for acupressure, is that the same 
or are they just yeah. specific trigger points? I think I think um, with acupressure, it's it's going to be the same points. It's just the the type of stimulation you're giving. I think in a pinch, acupressure is great. I use it on myself when I'm needleless. Although I do carry needles pretty much wherever I go, um, but I think you know without a needle, that's that's where I get the patient education form in. Um, for example, I have a, a psychiatric patient who he has found a, a tremendous relief with scalp acupressure and ear acupressure. You know, he doesn't have an acupuncture license, but I've taught him enough points to know like, hey, this is when you press this for anxiety or this for, you know, um, your, your, you know, stress and sleep. And so he's used acupressure on his own time to kind of induce his own physiologic changes. Uh, so that's that's more of when I use the acupressure is with the patient and, and empowering them to to make physiologic changes. Alex, you know, one of the questions we get when patients come in is how does this even work? And you mentioned energy. So can you take us through a little bit about the physiology, what it means from the Eastern perspective, and then maybe what the Western society is now seeing too with research? Oh, yeah. So so chi is the word, right? So chi or QI. Chi is the all life-giving and nourishing energy that goes through all humans, plants, animals, just about everything. And, and what chi really is, is electrons in Western terms. So electrons really make up just about everything. Um, and then in, in beings or in organic life, those electrons have different pathways that then give rise to physiology. And in the human being, you know, the nervous system is the highway for a lot of these electrons and that electric impulses transmute, transmit data to um, every, every spot, every cell, every organ. So um, I would say preferential electroionic migration. I know it's a mouthful, but that's what chi is. It's this preferential gradient that electron tra electrons travel through. And guess what? They mostly travel through fluid, right? Because fluid is highly conductive. So in the body, a lot of these acupuncture points are actually located at these valleys that fluid accumulates in, meaning fascial valleys. So that's why uh, being able to palpate and being a DO, it made me very easily pick up acupuncture because I'm palpating for these fascial channels that I'm like, all right, fluid's going to flow through there. And I'm not talking like blood or lymph. I'm talking like extracellular fluid. So a lot of this third space fluid is what transmits the, the acupuncture signaling. Um, but wherever you're having like these, uh, these fluid cleavages is, is where you'll find a lot of strong points. Uh, so essentially you're, you're putting the needles in these cleavages, you're letting the fluid carry the electrons or the chi, um, either through areas that are deficient. So you can have, you know, a yang or a yin based presentation. So yang and yin is how I, we kind of read things like, and, and that's like acute versus chronic. So with yin conditions are very chronic, very ropey, fibrotic. There's not a lot of circulation there. They need some attention. So that's maybe when I would add electrons to that system, stimulate the body, get a little pro-inflammation in there, um, just get the body to pay attention. And then with the yang conditions are like, you know, really acute, hot, red, sweaty, those things, uh, you can set needles in there, but not have an input. Like you don't spin them, you don't add electrons, you just let the body use that needle to what we call disperse energy or disperse electrons through the metal. Um, so, so it's really, really cool how just stainless steel entering the body system can then alter physiology and you can influence it how you want. Um, so, so that's kind of how energy fits into all of this. So when you say spin, 
and you know using these instruments like stainless steel can you just kind of explain what that means like how exactly are you getting these electrons out of that of that of that structure or system yeah so so when when you spin the needle that's tonification for example so uh you can tonify it with your hands you can use moxa or moxibustion to add heat to a needle that heat differential will then also transmit electrons through specific pathways so um Really, if it's a frictional force or if it's a heat force, and it's all electrophysics is how this is all mediated, uh, that is how you can add energy to a system. To subtract energy, it's almost like set it and forget it. So you just like set in the, the stainless steel um, and then allow the body to, to use that metallic stimulus as a method of dispersion is what we call it. So you have tonification versus dispersion. Um, and so a lot of times, uh, the simplest treatment is sometimes the most effective where I, for, for instance, this is a great example. I had this patient, um, just the other day at this free, you know, senior festival we were doing, he's post post laparoscopic hernia repair. Uh, his belly has been like quivering and, and, and kind of like spasming he called it for for two months since the surgery you know he's been to everyone no one can figure this out um whereas i look at it i'm like okay in western terms this is just weird like i don't know what to call this but in eastern terms i would say this is this is just a yang overflow situation where the surgery put his abdominal muscles in a state of hyper facilitation and they're just like dysregulated so what I did, I just put in a bunch of needles into his belly in these specific points uh, that are I know are strong abdominal points, and I just let them go. Like I didn't spin them, I didn't add electricity to them, because to me this is an acute like overflow condition. Um, and guess what? Twenty minutes later, I just pull the needles out, and he's like, he's like, hey, my my belly stopped twitching for like the first time in like two months. This is insane. Wow. And of course. I got a new patient from that. <laughs> They're like, I'm seeing you like this week. Um, so, so when I kind of like simplify things like that uh, and just let the needles do their thing, you get really cool uh, results because the body ultimately knows how to get back to homeostasis. So this is really cool stuff, man. I think, you know, a lot of our osteopathic students and DOs will appreciate what you're talking about when you talk about the acute versus chronic texture of skin, uh, which we all learn as the fundamentals of OMM. But then also those who love to hike and go, you know, do some grounding in nature and use their bare feet out in the grass. I mean, that's all electron flow. So it seems like this is no different. Yeah. Grounding is dispersion. Exactly. So I did want to ask too, though, a lot of people talk about meridians and the lines with our body and how they kind of, I believe, connect to the feet. Does that play any role into acupuncture? Yeah. So the meridians are your highways, right? And I think of, I think of it as like, you know, your body has all of these train stations on it and then specific stops are where energy can accumulate. Um, so, and I think a great book that I often refer to is like uh, Anatomy Trains. Like that's a great Western lens into these meridians. They're fascial meridians, so they're not going to line up completely with our understanding of acupuncture meridians, which are slightly different. But I would say they're really close because, again, the acu meridians are based on fascial planes. So if you kind of superimpose the two, you're going to find a lot of overlap. Um, for example, the bladder meridians are the paraspinal meridians. And those would fit in with the superficial backline in anatomy trains language. So, um, so you're going to see, again, it's like knowing two languages for the same system, which I think is really cool because osteopathically speaking, 
knowing osteopathy first and then learning acupuncture and both of them work really well, it shows that there is some kind of universal thing happening in the body that these two completely different uh, cultures and completely different timelines somewhat discovered in this like congruent fashion. It's like, you know, when bat wings and butterfly wings, totally different, but they both fly. So there's got to be something unifying about physics, right? So I think um, in terms of the the meridian system again it's a it's a language it's like knowing you know in new york city you can take the subway if you want and you know the subway system but over superimposed on that are the streets and you take an uber if you want to and you'll get to the same spot but it's 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 overlapped and it's going to be these different pathways that you can intertwine them you can use both kinds of transport if you want to maybe you get there faster that would be cool but so I think the meridian system is another language of like this energetic highway system. And once you learn the stops, you learn how fast they go, you learn, you know, when to take this train versus that one in certain situations, then you become a master of learning like how to use that transport system. I love that, man. I want to start talking a little bit about specific indications, right? So you've highlighted a few of them. Mm-hmm. You mentioned this abdominal uh, pain, not pain, yeah. quivering case. I don't know. I don't know what the ICD 10 code for that is, but, um, you also mentioned high, like an autonomic nervous system, maybe overload. Yeah. Right. So I think of high arousal states, stress, anxiety. I have personal experience with that, with acupuncture, uh-huh. depression as well. I actually read a meta-analysis, um, or I came across a study where I skimmed through it. I don't want to lie and say I read the whole study, but I did skim through it. And it was I think published last month where it was looking at, uh, the role of non-drug therapies um, in, I think it was sleep quality was a primary objective and depression was a secondary outcome. And in that study, what stood out to me is, uh, I think CBT for depression, what they found with the CBT acupuncture were the two best modalities. And they had a couple of things. I think they had transcranial direct stimulation. They had acupressure in that as well. One of the studies looked at that, but with sleep quality, um, they had, uh, again, acupuncture. And I think the other thing that worked really well was, uh, aromatherapy for that. So, you know, I think for that kind of what you talked about in terms of just from systemically toning down that uh, high arousal state can be tremendously beneficial. We know as we've had multiple conversations, one comes to mind with Patrick Finan is like pain and anxiety and mood are so tightly coupled together. Yeah. Right. And um, and 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 your sleep and and that's also uh, coupled together with that as well. So so that all makes sense to me. But yeah. the would you say the primary reason people are coming to through the door in your clinic is pain or are there a lot of other referrals you're getting as well? I think, yeah, I think pain is definitely the number one. Um, And then the, and then the incidental finding is that like the pain might not be fully related to what they think it is when they come in, uh, which I find interesting. For example, you know, lady comes in with low back pain. Okay. She's like, I'm sitting a lot at work. You know, uh, I, I, I'm a consultant. I'm traveling. I'm on planes a lot. It's got to be that, right? I'm like, eh, maybe. Let's treat you and see what happens. So, you know, we treat the low back, a few treatments. It gets a little better, but I'm still like, there's something, there's something underlying here. Um, and then we get more into the history. I'm like, okay, tell me every surgery you've had because I personally have a sub-interest in scar tissue and post-operative care. And she goes, well, let's talk about my C-sections. And then my, you know, my spidey senses are tingling because C-sections for me, learning integrative medicine is like a big red flag. So 
um, she's like, I've, I had three C-sections separately and I just never felt really the same since then. And I was like, well, what does that mean? She's like, well, I just, I don't know. I just feel like something isn't really connecting when I'm like walking and running and doing all these things. So in my mind, I'm like, wow, these C-sections, you know, if you look at how they cross the meridian paths, they just cut the three like main anterior meridians of your body completely. They just cut them down to a very deep level, right down to the uterine level. Um, so I told her, I'm like, listen, I'm very curious to see if we just do some acupuncture desensitization and maybe some some injections, like some repivacane injections to the scar, you know, what might happen? Um, because in integrative medicine teaching, you know, scar deactivation can unlock a lot of new neuromuscular connections and, and repair these faulty ones that have been set in. So we did that. And then she she had like zero pain for two weeks going on vacation to Italy. And she was like ecstatic. So we kind of found that, you know, they think they're coming in for for this specific pain. But really, what we need to fix is this like thing that happened decades ago. Like she her kids are in their 20s. She's had this issue for like 20 years, but thought it was just because of work. Um, so, yeah, I would say pain ultimately is is the number one. But but then the other reasons that I'm treating them for later down the road are like very different than what what they kind of think they need, so to speak. Yeah. So I've got a lot of follow ups, but I think it would make more sense to ask them if we talk about setting patient expectations. Right. So just offline before we started the recording, we were talking about, you know, for Altamash and I, you know, being in physical medicine rehab, we obviously see a lot of people come in with pain. And sometimes as a last resort or middle resort, we'll say, hey, have you tried acupuncture? Um, and some people will buy in, some people won't. But oftentimes they ask us, well, you know, what does it mean? How does it work? And what can I expect? And that's kind of where we're at a loss, because of course, we're not getting taught this in medical school or residency for that fact. So if you don't mind kind of just like role playing, or at least I want to put you in our perspective and say, a patient comes in, we're going to say, hey, we're going to refer you to acupuncture. What's the conversation that you would have with them from like start to finish so that they can come out of that meeting saying, okay, I'm ready to go for my first visit to acupuncture? Yeah, I, I love keeping things very open ended because then it kind of reveals to me what the patient's, you know, thought process is. So I say, you know, if I were a physiatrist, right, I'd say to the patient, OK, I want to refer you to acupuncture. What questions do you have about it or what do you think about it? Because um, some people are like, oh, I've been wanting to try it for years. Let's do it. Like they're already bought in. They're like, I watched 10 YouTube videos on it. I'm down. I think it's going to help. And you're like, perfect. Like if you don't have any questions for me, then definitely ask Dr. King when you get there or you can send him an email, da, da, da. Um, so that's on one end. Then the other end of the spectrum is like acupuncture. That's kind of, do doctors even do that? That's kind of weird. I don't, I don't think it's going to work. Well, it, is it, does it hurt all this kind of, so that's the other end is like the very kind of timid or not really sure. And then it's your job to make the sale, right? So, so what you say is, and it really helps too if you've had it yourself. So I say if you're a physiatrist, definitely try and get it done yourself just so you can speak from that experience. Because um, then you could say, oh man, listen, I, I had my own issues and, and I got acupuncture for it. It really didn't hurt. It maybe felt like a little pinch or a tap. But after a few seconds, it was gone. And, you know, I just kind of took a nap and felt better afterwards kind of thing. But I would say if a patient's kind of concerned about, you know, main thing is they're going to ask, does it hurt? And I would say it's possible for it to be uncomfortable. However, 
in in the large majority of points that that are used they don't hurt they might feel like a slight achiness or a tap or a pinch if it does hurt when you're getting the needles just immediately tell the doctor and he'll pull the needle out and it'll go away um because there is that unavoidable chance of hitting like a cutaneous nerve and it feels a little bit like a slight mosquito bite or a bee sting but you take the needle out and it's gone so that is a risk right and it's about one and i would say every 100 insertions um so so that's what i would say about does it hurt and then the second thing is like well does it work or how does it work i would say well they insert these really thin needles thinner than your hair in a lot of cases uh into specific points in the body to then cause a, a your body to react in a positive way meaning that maybe your pain is lower afterwards maybe you have better functionality better range of motion um Sometimes it can stir some things up. It's like when you poke the bear and it kind of grumbles a little bit, but goes back to sleep. Uh, that can happen too, but it all depends on your response to it because everyone's different. So it's hard to fully predict what's going to happen. But I would say in large part, if the acupuncturist knows what they're doing, they likely will get a positive res result. And then you get more into the adverse reactions. So the patient's like, well, what are, what are the risks? Um, well, luckily with acupuncture, the risks are extremely minimal. And some of the really severe risks that I talk about patients are pneumothorax, right? If you go really deep and don't know where you're going, you're going to poke the lung and that could be a bad situation. But luckily, you know, that is extremely rare, especially if you're treating the leg or the arm or the head or something like that. So you say only if they kind of go in that chest or in that back area, it could be possible. But what I tell my patients is I don't even use needles long enough to reach it. So there's nothing really to worry about on that angle because it's physically impossible unless I'm really jamming that thing in and you would know. Um, and then you talk about the other ADRs, for example, patients who are really dysautonomic, uh, you know, if they've got severe history of vagovasal syncope or fibromyalgia, or if they're one of our hypermobile POTS, you know, uh, CRPS or, um, you know, dysautonomic patients who fit that picture, then you say, you might start with only one or two or three needles because I've had patients who got way too many needles initially and their pressure dropped for like multiple days and they had to get hospitalized. So if you have a patient like that, you just got to let them know and, and just say your acupuncture physician or who you're referring them to will really make that judgment call based on their clinical comfortability. But um, really, those are the only severe reactions I've seen or heard about in large part the adverse reactions are extremely minimal, you know, maybe some numbness tingling at the points, maybe a little bleeding, bruising, but that's it. And then, you know, the, and then, and then the last question is how long does the relief last? And that really depends on the person depends on, you know, are they going for a workout right after they got the acupuncture? If so, that's probably not going to last too long. Um, some people can get up to from a few days to a few weeks of relief after one treatment. So that's kind of the average I would say is like, you know, maybe a few days up to a few weeks and you have to, you know, get treated just to see. So I'd say in large part, a lot of it can be dependent on that patient. Um, but that's kind of like easy ways to answer those questions. Alex, what about treatment frequency and interval? That's what I'm curious about. I get that question quite a bit. And I'm wondering if there is a generic statement that you'll come up with, hey, we're going to try X amount of treatments. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure it's dependent on the specific disease. Um, comment on that a little bit. Yeah. So 
in general, I would I give myself baseball rules. So I'm like three strikes, I'm out. Like if I've tried it three times, we're not getting anywhere, then I'm going to have that discussion, you know, to say, hey, do you want to continue this or do you want me? I can send you to someone else who might be a better fit kind of thing. Um, luckily, that hasn't happened like a ton in my practice. I've, I've kind of tried to crack the code after those three sessions. And um, I've got a lot of other tools, luckily, in my belt to, to help. But um, I would say frequency wise, the, the rule of thumb is like roughly once a week, I think is safe physiologically. Uh, yes, you can do that multiple times per week if the patient is responding well and they feel like it is you know, vital to their life that they get this treatment every couple days and they can A, afford it or get it covered and B, their schedule is open enough. Because privately, you know, you will see acupuncturists that occasionally will have those patients who just get so much relief for that week and then they're back to kind of ground zero, but they're happy to come in on a weekly basis. Um, in my personal practice, once every four to six weeks is the average, but my schedule being insane is like now getting more to six to eight-ish, which I don't love. Um, cause on average, I would say relief from acupuncture lasts roughly two weeks. I would say is a, kind of the average for what I found two, two to four weeks. Um, so that's why I'm at that once a month ish mark for most of my patients. Um, of course, even if it does last, you know, for that long patients just want to feel great all the time. So a lot of my patients, they still have relief, but still come in cause they're like, I just want to feel great again, like even better than just, you know, without pain, I want to be without pain and feel euphoric. And I'm like, okay, great. Um, so, so yeah, those are kind of the numbers there. Um, but I would say, you know, overall physiologically, like I treat myself once a week, like I put needles, like I put my needles in my head today during lunch and just like took a power nap, like, cause I was just stressed. Um, so I think, uh, in terms of getting that endorphin boost to happen, I would say, yeah, every every week or so is, is pretty decent. Something that's very popular in our clinic are ear seeds. You want to yes. talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'm, I'm like Johnny Appleseed, but for, for the ear. Um, yeah, so ear seeds, those are more of the acupressure, the acupressure kind of uh, band-aids that you put on your ear. They're these little vicaria seeds. Vicaria is a flowering plant, and those seeds are um, generally pretty non-reactive to the body. Like they do make metallic seeds and, and ear, uh, barbed actual like needles that will stay in and stick into your skin for quite a while. They use those a lot in the military. They're called ASP needles. Um, but the ear seeds are a nice way to kind of either introduce someone into the concepts of acupuncture, which is why I use it to teach. Uh, but you put them at specific points on the ear and fun fact, if you Google like ear homunculus, you'll find the whole body is is laid out on the ear due to our embryology uh, because the ear has ecto, endo and mesoderm all superficially due to how early it develops. So when you when you put these little pressure beads on your ear, um, yes, just sitting there, they kind of stimulate those spots from the pressure. But if you press and massage them, they actually have a more substantial effect and you can keep these band-aids on. You know, it's like any band-aid. You keep it on for a few days or a week ish. Um, but it can, in specific instances, really give a lot of relief in terms of anxiety, stress, can help you sleep. Um, and it's just like a nice kind of easy, again, almost zero side effects other than some mild nausea and headache in, in maybe one case that I know of. Um, I put these seeds in thousands of people. So uh, again, and, and you just find them on Amazon, you know, you just, they're super cheap. You get like 600 for 10 bucks and, and you can like, try and use them. So 
that I would say they're popular because of ease of access and uh, ease of placement. Although they can be a little tricky, so there's some learning curve there. But uh, it's a nice intro to get someone kind of curious about how acupuncture works. So I, I like them for sure. That's super cool, man. I've got to try that out. But uh, we'll definitely link link some of those uh, Google links at least in our show notes for the uh, audience to try out. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, a couple more follow up questions for you. Um, the first is understanding buy in. Like, how important is it to have patient buy in when it comes to acupuncture? Um, you know, I'm guessing a lot of them come in and if, if they don't think it's going to work, then, hey, it's not going to work. But if they do believe something like is there how much of a placebo is there versus how much of it's actually the pathophys in your in your cases? I you know, it's funny. I love it when patients are skeptical. I love when they're like, ah, this isn't going to work, is it? And I'm like, yeah, we'll see. Because in my head, I'm like, oh, this is probably going to work. Um I would say for, for my practice personally, the buy-in does not really play much of a factor, although it can help if they're truly like, I love acupuncture. I love the concept. I'm super jazzed about trying it. And then of course, like as with, as with any kind of treatment, if they're like that, it, it will probably have a more positive effect. But with the, the people who don't quite believe in it, um, I love those because most, most of the time in my experience, those are the cases that actually become the biggest fans of acupuncture after they get it because they have such a different reaction to what they thought would happen that they're just awestruck by it. And they're like, oh, my gosh, like I actually, you know, I actually can like get up and move in a way that I haven't been able to in years or like I feel younger after this or feel like lighter. Um, so I think in terms of the buy in, it, it does help, but certainly doesn't like make or break the treatment. Yeah. Gotcha. No, it's good to know. Cause especially when we talk to our patients that seem skeptical, at least it's like, Hey, just give it a try. I mean, there's a lot of evidence, at least from, from what we know for it to work. Um, yeah. my second follow-up is from the provider perspective. So obviously as a physiatrist, we're looking at so many different modalities, right? So a lot, why a lot of patients come to us from injections to medications, to therapy, where do you like to see acupuncture get used as a treatment modality, right? Like, is it something that should be first line as a last resort? Should they be getting acupuncture almost as a prehab before surgery? Can they do acupuncture while they're getting certain type of injections? Like, what should we know about that? Yeah, I think when when you're looking at the line of where modality falls in, it's oftentimes it's like, what are the adverse reactions, right? Or how invasive is it? Um, as a modality, acupuncture, yes, it's it's more invasive than OMM. Certainly, it's you know you're going into the body. Um, but, but it's, it's got such few ADRs in my experience that it's like, why not just try it as, as like a first or second line thing, depending on the patient's attitudes towards needling. Um, if a patient isn't really bothered by needles, like oftentimes I'll try Accu before OMM just because, uh, I have a hunch that like, Hey, if this is a more neurologic based type of pain, then I think, especially for example, like disc herniation, yeah, OMM is less invasive and it's still it's not a ton of ADRs, but I think I, I can get more changes with acupuncture needling a lot of times in that neurologic situation. So so I would say as a first line for really a lot of things, it is it is excellent. Um, one big one, for example, is like headaches, like headaches and migraines. Uh, I can I can get a headache to abort in like two minutes. Just like let me put a needle in a couple spots and they don't even have to take Tylenol. And that that headache is gone. Um, so I think 
ideally like first or second line is where I'd love to see it. But the problem you run into is ease of access. Like, yes, if every urgent care, every primary doc knew how to do some acupuncture, I mean, we would save so much in medic in, in healthcare dollars, but like, is that realistic? Unfortunately, no. So unless, you know, a hundred years from now, maybe I can inspire some change and get everyone to learn it in medical school, which is maybe my goal. I don't know. But, um, but as a first line, second line, I think it really does shine. But what I've found is being a specialist now I'm often fourth, fifth, sixth line, uh, but can still get those changes. It's just, I wish they had it sooner because it would have made it a lot easier. Awesome. And just so people understand ADRs, adverse drug reactions, that's what we're going yes. for. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So yeah, side of our profile, same thing. I, I, I try to tell my patients, I'm listen, musculoskeletal medicine is not complicated. Although I think you're doing something beyond, right? You're, you're talking about neurological, neuromuscular medicine, mm -hmm. but also, yeah, you know, autonomics and, and some, some advanced stuff that's, that's beyond me. But what I'll tell them is like, you know, we we're at the spectrum where we have very over-the-counter modalities, uh, oral medications, topical stuff, passive quote-unquote modalities where we talk about heat, ice, massage, yeah, those things. And then we get a little bit more aggressive and we talk about interventional mm -hmm. options. Um, you know, physical therapy is kind of there because that's just, I think, a way for an insurance company to pay for structured exercise. And that has to be a staple of a treatment. And then, you know, surgery might be at the end of the line with a few exceptions. So I do love that. Yeah, it, it does break my heart though because- Again, knowing firsthand is how many patients I'll try to refer and it's just, they, we just can't get in. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, I've never been able to get a patient. I'm like, yes. And then he, they, they don't have to go on a wait list. But so yeah. uh, the ease of access piece is is is, is critical. Again, I, I don't think in this South Jersey area, there's another acupuncturist, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. There's, there's one other one uh, with Cooper and then a bunch of private ones that I'm friends with. But of course, that's out of pocket. So you, you'll only get it covered if you're a doctor doing it. So yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. Anything else that you think is worth covering with respect to acupuncture for patients, for providers to understand um, that's worthwhile? Yeah, like like Darsh mentioned too, pre and post-op I think is huge. Um, I've noticed really good outcomes for patients who get it preoperatively and in, in the way they come out of anesthesia. I, I have to look at the data on that too, but but it's they they notice a quick, much quicker return to their baseline men mental state. Um, and and post, I would say one of my biggest passions and interests is in treating scar tissue post-op because I think, I think there's a big uh, deficit in terms of surgeons getting trained in how to treat scars that are dysfunctional after their procedures. They kind of, you know, at least from patients I've seen, the scars aren't really followed up in terms of, uh, you know, longitudinally, you know, maybe there's one, one or two post-op visits. Hey, if the surgery went well, great. There, there's a kind of a certain expected level of discomfort right after the surgery because, you know, they got cut open and sewed back together. So but I think if there was a more integrative uh, kind of education involved in surgical training um, of, of, you know, how to treat scars after, because I'm catching a lot of those cases in terms of like I'm getting them way, way further down the line because of their scar issues than if, you know, they were just treated right after the procedure, they'd have better outcomes. Just like that lady, for example, with the C-sections, right? If she was just treated right after those C-sections, she wouldn't have had back pain for 20 years. So, uh, or at least it wouldn't have been as bad. So I think, um, you know, and, and acupuncture too, you know, you can use to needle the scars and kind of create more of a healing response. But I think that is important, you know, for any practitioner, even primary care. Um, 
you know, if you have a patient who's got these weird constellation of symptoms, no one can quite figure it out. Ask about the scars because scars can create quite odd presentations of things, not just physically and, and in terms of pain, but functionally like laparoscopic port scars can cause a lot of GI issues, um, whether it's from adhesion based things or just from functional ganglion based things where they're not, they're kind of still pissed off. They're like, Hey, you invaded my territory. What the heck? Like I can't, my bowels aren't, they're not functioning properly. Um, so a uh, classic example was that guy who came to see me the other day for his the weird abdominal quivering. Like he's been to like six people and I just tried needling him at like this community health fair. And he's like, dude, I feel so much better. <laughs> I was like, yeah, no problem. It's free. It's on the house for now. So, um, so I think, I think uh, op- operations like pre and post-op is, is where I think there's a little bit of a lack of of training maybe maybe it's in med school maybe it's in the residency training but there's something there that's that's a deficit i'm just seeing a lot of so yeah i don't know if you you guys see the same thing but no man i i, I certainly agree i have actually gotten a few patients uh like I, the one comes to mind is i think it's just uh, a young female post acl uh reconstruction which just has just cutaneous scar pain and yeah. me doing a hydrodissection of the scar just cause tremendous relief. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. you know, again, we think about kind of pain generation. We think about injections into joints and tendons and tendon sheets and, and, and nerve blocks and that kind of stuff to help with the pain. But sometimes just like the obvious thing, uh, makes sense. And actually it's with respect to, to risks and, um, you know, potentially adverse effects that you think about it's, it's quite safe compared to some of the yeah, other things. So very safe. Yeah. Um, Awesome, man. Well, I love it. I think this has been very comprehensive. I know I am more informed uh, with respect to having a conversation with some few, with some of my patients and describing acupuncture to help set that up, right? To expectations early on. So when they do walk in through your door, uh, potentially they can have a more positive outcome. Um, Darsh, any last minute closing thoughts? Uh, anything else that you think is worth including here? Nothing in regards to acupuncture. I mean, Alex, I'm always interested in your lifestyle, kind of what you've been doing. I know you've been intermittent fasting. I see you using kettlebells for a workout. Any type of advice that you can give us, anything that you found to be profound over the last three years um, since you've been last on this podcast? Yeah, I'm getting deep into the rabbit holes of rope flow, man. Rope flow is incredible. Um, if you guys haven't tried it, Altamash, I'll bring in my rope so you can try. It is such a unique mode of of neuroplastic programming that i found for myself um not only is it just a great warm-up but it'll unlock these like weird movement patterns that i didn't even realize like i had deficits in um so if if you, you guys don't know if your listeners don't know rope flow is essentially kind of like taking a heavy jump rope so to speak but but using it rotationally in tempo with tapping the floor and in using your whole body, you know, from the ground up to kind of generate motion. Um, but it can, you know, once you master the movements, it can become a great, you know, form of expression. Even like if I throw my headphones on, I'm listening to some music. I'm just like flowing, you know, doing these different moves. Not only is it a great warm up and cardio, but it, it really helps with neuroplasticity. And I think um, this kind of trend is just starting. You might see a lot of fitness influencers like trying this kind of stuff. But uh, that's something I've been getting deep into and i'd say over the last couple of years um just to explore ways of training because of my own back low back issues i've really started to just using mainly like kettlebells steel maces steel clubs sandbags a lot of functional based stuff that causes you to be thrown off balance so to speak 
like I'm way more comfortable in those uh, compromised positions with my spine. Um, and my, my pain has been, you know, way, way less and, and essentially zero now, you know, it'll, it'll creep up here and there. Um, but you know, I get some treatment and I'm good for like the month. So, so yeah, I'd, I'd say if, if anyone's out there looking to try something new, or if you guys want to try a new thing, I think rope flow is cool. Um, you know, the ropes are like, I don't know, 30 to 50 bucks or something, but you can take them anywhere. Very travel, travel friendly. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just like a cool, fun, like warm up. And I think that's something a lot of pro athletes are actually missing out on if, if they haven't tried it. Just a different kind of motion integration and neuromuscular repatterning, so to speak. I love that, dude. I think that's like one the, the key thing that I'm missing in my workout routine. You know, like I'll hit the cardio, the zone five, the zone two, the strength training and some balance. But when you stop playing sports, right? Like I stopped playing basketball. I don't play tennis as much yeah. as often. You lose a lot of that hand-eye coordination, the way your body works from the, you know, hand-to-feet coordination as well. Yeah, the proprioception and stuff. So I'll definitely have to give that a try because that's something I've been really trying to look into incorporating back, but that motivation, you know, really isn't there when you don't really know what to do if you're not playing a sport. So rope flow, we'll definitely definitely check it out. Totally rope flow. Yeah. 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 For sure. Cool. Anything else, Alex, uh, that you're doing lifestyle wise or anything else you want to share? What else am I doing? Um, I think, yeah. I mean, with the fasting, you know, I'm trying to find my sweet, sweet spot with that. I, you know, I'm, I'm got a 12 to eight o'clock window. I'm taking a lot of supplements. I'll update you guys based on. Uh, so I found like I had some high cholesterol things. So I'm taking like red rice yeast mm-hmm. and looking at a more natural approach to like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Altamash, you know, clued me in on your lipidologist uh, uh, podcast. So I, I checked that out and got a lot of good info. Um but yeah, just trying to optimize my health. And, uh, and I think I've hit a really solid spot where, you know, like I'm not in a ton of pain, um, mentally feeling really good, physically good. So yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think another big thing is, is the whoop, man. If whoop could sponsor me, oh God, <laughs> I freaking, I live by my whoop. Like, I don't know if you guys have tried it, but like, I love the biometric data knowing how much I'm recovered, when is the best for me to train, what my stress levels are. I, I plug that thing a lot, um, not just for the free months. I know that's a bonus, but like uh, <laughs> I genuinely I use it as my alarm, you know, like it, it, I'm using it a lot. So I think that I've used for almost a year now. And it's really cool to just look back on the data. And I realized that not having a sauna every other day is like really impacted my sleep because back when I lived in Cherry Hill, I had that steam room sauna session every, you know, every time I lifted and my sleep was like so much better back then. So I think that was the one key thing that changed. So I'm going to try and get back to doing that when I can. Um, But yeah, I think those are like the main, main lifestyle things I'm running right now. Amazing, man. I can also uh, endorse the whoop. I've been using it. I actually haven't used it for the last two months. Um, I've been having some battery issues with it just because I, I've, I've had the whoop 3.0 and not the 4.0. And I just want to test myself and be like, all right, can I live without having the data? Um, so actually, I've been using it the last two months. Um, it's been a little bit freeing, to say the least. I know, Altamash, uh, <laughs> that was your kind of thing, too, back, back when you had the aura and stuff. Um, so you kind of caught me on that. Uh, but the whoop is amazing, man, to at least have that journal. Like I, I lived and died by that. And really figured out things that worked for me. Um, so absolutely second that. Uh, but Alex, this has been fantastic, man. Whoop, if you're listening, send my buddy a uh, some batteries. I was just saying, Whoop <laughs> needs to send you some batteries here. I need the 4.0, <laughs> man. I need the 4.0. Yeah, yeah, seriously. 
Um, but Alex, this has been awesome. Uh, why don't you tell the listeners where to find you on social media so that they can see the workouts you're doing, the way you're treating people with acupuncture. And then also, you know, for those that might be in the tri-state area that want to come down and see you on those Saturday clinics about your acupuncture clinic. Yeah. So my, uh, my social is mainly, I use Instagram at, at doctor.alex.king. So doctor spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R dot alex dot king and then my private practice website is king um and yes my saturday clinics are all cash based um and uh yeah I'm, I'm at the uh my wife works at a gym as a personal trainer and we have our own recoverology business which is at recoverology underscore delco because it's in delaware county so d-e-l-c-o uh, but that is where my practice is located. And, you know, we have saunas, we have all the recovery modalities like Normatec, Hypervolts um, and cupping. She does a lot of cupping there, too. So. So, yeah, and, and it's membership based. So whether you want to see me on a Saturday or drop in for a recovery session, we're always there uh, six, seven days a week, pretty much. So, yeah, that's how to check me out. Amazing. We're going to link all that in the show notes. Well, buddy, I want to thank you again for for jumping on here. I know I get... Um, the privilege of, of seeing this up close and personal and learning from you on a daily basis. So I'm glad we we're able to share this with the audience. And I know this is going to be helpful for a lot of um, healthcare providers who are listening. The last question you might remember from almost three years ago that we ask, uh, but before we do that, I, for the purposes of accuracy, I want to quote this uh, Voltaire quote, right? It goes, the art of medicine consists of amusing the patient while nature cures the disease. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I was somewhat close, but either way, Alex, uh, maybe that's a good setup for it. Uh, the the thing that we're most interested in is health rather than sick care, right? So we always ask is how do we add the health back to healthcare? How do we add the health back to healthcare? <laughs> I had a really weird idea that popped in my head, but I'm, but I'm like, you know, I'm on this train, but take more magnesium people. That's, that's going to add health to your healthcare is, is, I think there's a big subclinical magnesium epidemic happening in this country and across the world that's not being addressed. But I will say it that once I supplemented some magnesium, man, a lot of my stuff felt felt a lot better. But but, you know, not to be facetious or anything, but to to add health back to healthcare is to add humanism back to healthcare. So I think, you know, no matter what kind of physician you are, you're going to have constraints placed upon you. and, And, you know, this isn't just like a a free society where we can, you know, live and do however we want and practice however we want. There will be some constraints, but as long as you still have that human in front of you as your focus um, and, and being a partner with them in their healthcare, that is going to set you up for success. So this isn't like a dictatorial thing where I'm like, I'm telling you, you got to take your medicine or you got to do this procedure or whatever. It's like, Hey patient, like these are, these are our options, right? This is what we, we can go hundred miles an hour. We can go five miles an hour. I'm cool. I'm in the passenger seat with you. Like you can drive, like, just tell me where you want to be. That's kind of how I present things to my patients. And, and I think that's a great humanistic approach. Um, so to add health back to healthcare, I'd say is to, is to bring humanism into healthcare as well. Nailed it. Take that magnesium, but remember this is not <laughs> medical advice. Consult your doctor. Yes. Consult your doctor. I'm not your doctor. Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, always a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. Yes, of course. All right. Thanks, Alex. All right. Thank you so much for tuning into that episode. I always find it enlightening when we can take 
quote unquote, old school medicine, things from the East and really start to understand the evidence behind it and why we start to use it more and more um, in our medical practices, especially as we start to see some of the Western resources fail. And there are so many people in this world, especially in this country, who deal with chronic pain, but have yet to find the right resource to alleviate that pain. And maybe they haven't heard of acupuncture or they've been scared of it. So if you know anyone, any friends or family who are dealing with pain, but are having a tough time getting rid of it, maybe acupuncture might be right for them. Go ahead, send them this episode, and maybe they can start a conversation with their own primary care physician. Otherwise, if you want to leave a rating and review or you have any feedback or guest suggestions, make sure to go to our website at medicineredefined.com. As always, our medical disclaimer, everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. We recommend that you seek the guidance of your personal physician regarding any specific health-related issues. And of course, thank you to our team, Haritha Yeh, Bori, and Ethan Ju for the production of this podcast. We'll see you next week.